We know when the Cold War, we thought, came to an end. First of all, with the fall of the Berlin Wall in November 1989, and then, of course, in December 1991, when the Soviet ambassador, sitting at the North Atlantic Cooperation Council in uh, NATO headquarters here in Brussels, when he announced that the Soviet Union no longer existed. We thought that we were in an era of peace and cooperation with what had been the Soviet Union. And now we're in a new era. Great power conflict, it would seem, is back. The battle between the democracies and the autocracies has begun. And I have to say, I think the world is too small for this. Something has to change. The shift has been a gradual process, of course. We've seen the rise of China. We've seen our Western societies becoming self-indulgent and complacent. We've lost sight of our core values and instead have turned in on ourselves, enabled an attack on our very history, traditions and institutions from within and closed our eyes to the realities of the world beyond. Some of us have long called for increases in Western defense expenditure, uh, in particular the revitalization of NATO. And I have to say that the New Direction think tank here in Brussels for many years has staged conferences and seminars calling for uh, this very outcome. On the other hand, over those same years, we've seen Putin investing disproportionately in the Soviet military, in the Russian military, spending over, at a rate, over twice the rate being spent by Western countries as a proportion of GDP. By the way, Russian GDP is quite small. It has a GDP that's smaller than Italy's no disrespect to Italy, but to put it in perspective. But he's been spending disproportionately on the military. What was he going to do with this? What did we expect this military machine that he was developing was going to be used for? Well, we saw it in 2014 when they seized the Crimea and the eastern Ukraine. But did we think for a moment that he was going to be content with the geographical uh, gap between those two parts of the Ukraine? Well, I mean, at last, NATO began to stir. And some of us had called for the strategic unity of the West and not separate agendas. Now, this week in Brussels, we have indeed a NATO summit, an extraordinary summit, and also what I would call the distraction of an EU summit. This will give approval to the European Union's so-called strategic compass for security and defense, dangerously setting out 
a Franco-German blueprint for some sort of autonomous EU defence policy, just when we should all be focused on Western unity. A key element of this, by the way, is to remove the national veto on EU defence policy and replace it by majority voting. This would be one of the last defences of our national governments who are members of the European Union. The erosion of their sovereign national capabilities and replacement by Brussels rule. So I call on the nations who are members of the European Union to resist this call. There's a great difference, by the way, between, there are many differences between the EU and NATO, but one vital difference is that NATO is an intergovernmental institution. It is the representatives of its member states that are there making the decisions. The European Union seeks to erode the powers of the nations and create an artificial new sovereignty. The European Union is also adept at turning a crisis into an opportunity. There's no surprise at this moment that again we're hearing calls for a so-called EU army. Far from strengthening the power and unity of the West, and its ability to defend itself, the EU effect has been to weaken Western capabilities and the NATO alliance in spite of the misleading rhetoric that you will hear being used. The latest evolution of this policy has been the idea of European Union strategic autonomy. What does that mean? Well, in effect, it means something separate from the United States. It can have no other meaning. And this, of course, is precisely what Moscow wants. It has long been the aim of Moscow to separate the, Euro the Europeans from the United States. It is, of course, the power of the United States that gives credibility to Western deterrence through NATO, the only alliance capable of defending our democracies and resisting hostile powers such as Russia. So any policies which create divisions in NATO and the transatlantic alliance play into the hands of aggressors and make conflict more likely. The United States, under successive presidents, has called for the Europeans to contribute more to defence, to share more of the burden. The EU army is not the way to do this. Just remember that 22 of the 30 NATO member states are also European Union members. And it doesn't help if they pre-cook an EU view ahead of a NATO meeting, or they distort the outcomes of the NATO meeting itself. And bear in mind that three of the most important European states are not EU members. 
and I think here, of course, of my own country, the United Kingdom, Norway and Turkey. The United Kingdom has the most capable armed forces in Europe. Norway is vital both to oil and gas supplies and also to control of the northern maritime area. Turkey has the largest armed forces in the region and controls access to the Black Sea, albeit regulated by the Montreux Convention. Certainly the European Union as an organization could make a contribution to humanitarian assistance and planning post-conflict reconstruction. But at the moment, our single-minded focus needs to be on aid to Ukraine and reinforcement of NATO's forward presence. I mentioned Turkey. I've long called for more understanding and sympathy for the crucial role of Turkey. In spite of her active and long-standing membership of NATO, Turkey has been badly treated by her allies for some decades. In recent years, Turkey has also developed a pragmatic relationship, it seems, with Russia. How has this been allowed to come about? She's also demonstrated a very strong and practical commitment to the Ukraine. And I have to say, all of the Western players have accepted a bogus and hostile narrative concerning the Turkish intervention in Cyprus in 1974. This has corrupted our approach ever since and has become a serious obstacle to improved relations with Turkey. If we didn't think we needed wholehearted Turkish engagement as a Western ally before, we certainly do now. Ladies and gentlemen, you only have to look at the map to see the verity of that. Let me conclude with going back to George Kennan and the observations he made regarding Russia 76 years ago and how we should respond to what he'd identified. His first point was understand what we're dealing with. That means know your enemy. Putin does not think like us. Secondly, educate the public in the realities. This must include uh, a massive counter-propaganda effort in our own countries, but also in the aggressor country itself. Put forward for other nations a positive and constructive picture of the sort of world that we want to live in. Let's not forget, somehow or other, there were 35 countries that abstained on that crucial UN resolution condemning the invasion of the Ukraine. 35 nations, either in thrall to Russia or indeed to China. So there's a lot of work that needs to be done there. And finally, 
Kennan remarked that we need to have the courage and self-confidence to cling to our own methods and conceptions, improve the health and vigor of our own societies, and stop the self-flagellation. What is very clear is the importance of a unified response by the West and its international partners, and the need, therefore, to improve the understanding and support of our own people at this time of crisis and threat. I don't think it's sunk home yet that the world has changed, and we don't want our own people to be living in fear, but we do want them to understand that times have changed and they have to make a difference and contribute to that. And of course, we have to invest more in defense. So ladies and gentlemen, let me leave you with some recent remarks of an on-the-ground observer of current events in the Ukraine. Very pertinent, I think, to the overall theme of this conference. These are his observations couple of weeks ago. I struggle to find Western liberal, liberal values behind the noble Ukrainian struggle. The values on display are more permanent and universal. A people united in courage as they face a foreign tyrant. Inspired not by think tanks lecturing on the rules-based international order, but from stocks of resistance and patriotism over centuries of Ukrainian history. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your attention. <laughs>